Good morning. I'll be reading from John chapter 15, starting in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without a reason. When the counselor comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of the truth, who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this a great time of the year? I don't mean spring, I mean March Madness. Um, Spring's good too, but March Madness is great. Um, It's got to be that at this time of the year, there are more concentrated game day speeches than any other time during the year. You know, teams all over the place, 64 teams to begin with, seems like just for days on end, you must have heard coaches in locker rooms. If you could have been a bug on the wall, giving these fired up speeches, sometimes way unrealistic, making predictions that they couldn't possibly know were true. All these things are great. Um, it's game day. Now, at the risk, and I know it's a risk, of belittling the gospel, when Jesus speaks these words, He's speaking to 12, ironically, basketball guy, 12 players, 12 disciples. He's speaking to them, and he's saying, my friends, it's game day. 
As a matter of fact, they didn't know what game day was. It's even so much the case that Peter tried to keep Jesus from going to game day. You're not going to go there, Lord. We're not going to let you go there. They had no idea what was out there. It was the first time this thing had ever happened. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, today is the day I prepare you for the future. And he gave them all kinds of instructions. Last week we talked about part of, chap of the chapter. In chapter 15, this week we consider the latter half of that chapter. And what I would like to do is reduce it, I know you're going to laugh, to two points. With lots of subpoints, but two main points. Here's the point. Jesus speaks to them and he says, I want you to understand your identity. And then, in the same speech, Jesus says, I want you to understand your reality. First, your identity. Jesus says, you are chosen. You did not choose me, I chose you. It may seem to you that you chose me, but the reality is you could not have chosen me if I had not chosen you. I chose you to do good works. As Paul later says, God chose us in Christ to do good works that he had prepared in advance for us to do. He knew well ahead of time who we were, and he chose us to do so. So he says, I've chosen you. And that's your identity. That comes about halfway through the chapter. But before we get to that point, he actually tells them what their identity is. So can we do this? Let's assume that the disciples are listening to Jesus. And they're listening to what he said at the beginning of this talk, this, this game day speech, and they get to the place about being chosen. And they say to themselves, for what? Chosen for what? Had they done that, Jesus would probably have said, just think about what I just said. The answer would be this. They were chosen for joy. I speak these words into your life. I give you this teaching. I've been with you for three years so that your joy could be full, complete, overflowing. I speak these words to you so you'll have joy. I don't give you these words so you'll have momentary happiness. I give you these words so you'll have deep joy. What the disciples eventually realized is how incredibly important those words were. You may remember in the book of Acts, that's the first book that was really following the disciples' time with Jesus. In the book of Acts, very early on, after Jesus has gone to be with the Father, the disciples fall under persecution almost immediately. And what happens when they face intense persecution? They're taken in by the authorities and beat. And they come out, Peter and the others, and here's what they say. They were rejoicing that they had been given the opportunity or the privilege to suffer for the name. They actually thanked God in the midst of deplorable circumstances for the opportunity to suffer. Talk about joy. That's joy, my friends. 
That's finding contentment and steadfast joy in the midst of your circumstances. Not only did the disciples early on learn that, but Paul later as a disciple seemed to reiterate it and did it well. Remember that epistle he wrote to the Philippians? It's known as the epistle of joy by most people. He was writing it to the Philippian church, and he said, I want you to rejoice always, all the time, no matter what the circumstances, rejoice. He spoke to those Philippians, and those Philippians knew that he knew what he was talking about. Because before he wrote that letter back to the Philippians, he'd established the church in Philippi. And the way he established the church in Philippi is he came and spoke the gospel with others, and he was persecuted. He was thrown into prison. He was lashed 39 times, and while his back was still bleeding, he sang praises to God, and God threw open the prison doors and released them. And in the midst of pain and hardship and agony, he rejoiced. So Paul and the other Disciples began to realize early on that Jesus had called them to a life of joy, and joy was contentment no matter what the circumstances. But they also realized from watching Jesus that joy was the result of a perspective, a perspective that transcends current reality because it's not like you can just joy your way through it. You have to realize, your mind has to be transformed in such a way that you realize that everything that's going on in your life is not just what's going on in your life. The reality that you experience is not just all there is to reality. They were given a transcendent understanding of life and thus they had joy. Why? Because they believed that God had purposes that they could not see. They took that step of faith and they said, even though I cannot see what the purpose of this particular issue in my life is, I will believe that God has purposes that I cannot see. You know what else brought them contentment and joy in those circumstances and eternal perspective? They recognized that not only could they not see it and might not see it tomorrow, but the reality the perspective that they had was eternal. It transcended time and space, not only their circumstances, but all the circumstances of all their friends and neighbors who followed Christ. That God was up to greater purposes, advancing his kingdom that were way ahead of them. And the only way to find contentment was to have an eternal perspective on our material reality. Jesus says, your identity is people who have been given joy. It's, um, it's interesting because we're not always known as a people of joy, right? Let, let's put it another way. There should be no grumpy Christians. There should be no complaining Christians. Because if we really understand God's love for us and God's purposes, will overflow with joy. I love what Bruce Larson said about this, and it really caught me, well, where I'm living. He said, if God is really the center of one's life and being, joy is inevitable. If we have no joy, we have missed the heart of the good news, and our bodies, as much as our souls, will suffer the consequences. I like that quote because it just stuck a needle in my heart. 
If God is really at the center of one's life and being, joy is inevitable. Let me put it another way. When I don't experience joy, it's because all I'm thinking about is me. Jesus said your identity is to be those who experience joy. He also said your identity is to be a group of people who love deeply. As a matter of fact, he put it this way, I command you, love one another. Now only Jesus can do that. I can't command my wife and my kids and my friends to love me. Jesus can command us to love one another. Jesus can command us to love because if you're going to follow Jesus, that's what you got to do. You can follow me and not love because I'm not completely loving. But God in Jesus Christ is overwhelmingly loving. And if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you've got to love. So Jesus says, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. He even said, love your enemies. In this passage, he focuses on loving one another. Your identity is to be a people of joy. Your identity is to be a people of love. And you know what will happen if you're a people of love? Jesus says that the world will notice and they won't give you credit. That's good news. The world will notice and they'll look past you. The world will notice and they will see me. So love one another. That's a great testimony to my love. He gave them the perfect example of how to love because he gave them himself. He loved them when they were foolish. He loved them when they did not understand. He loved them when they wanted to throw in the towel and give up. He loved them in spite of their sinfulness. And he told them to even love their enemies and he demonstrated that as well. As a matter of fact, he's about to demonstrate that in a way that they never would have imagined. The game day speech, it's right before the cross. Love deeply, says Jesus, watch me. As I hang on the cross and my life's blood drains out, I say, Father, Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's love. Just an aside, it's not really a part of the sermon, but if Jesus said, forgive them, you think it's possible that they didn't experience forgiveness? He's God. Forgive them. Jesus said. I, I don't know the story of the people who crucified Jesus, but it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. Forgive them. Jesus demonstrated love. He was the perfect example of it, and so he commanded them. So he says, here's what you're chosen for. You're chosen for joy, you're chosen for love, and you're chosen to be my friends. Not just servants, Servants is a good thing. He wasn't diminishing the importance of servants. As a matter of fact, Paul says, I'm a slave to Christ and I'm delighted by it, right? But what he's doing is he's taking the definition of their relationship with God and expanding it. They weren't thinking about God in terms of friendship. 
Believe me, a first century Jew is not going to think about friendship with God the way we might think about friendship with God. The reason we think about friendship with God is because Jesus knocked down the wall and said, I want to tell you something. Intimacy with God looks like friendship. You're not just servants anymore. A servant doesn't know his master's bidding. I mean, he knows his bidding. He doesn't know his business. I want to tell you something. You're now my friends. You know my business. You're in this with me. You're partners in this ministry as my friends. That's your identity. That's a new identity. Embrace it, he said. Um, you know, friends and partners, um, they share the delight and the joy of the one they're in partnership with and in friendship with and they even share the glory, too. Um, about the mid-1990s, um, it was really beyond dispute who was the best basketball player on the planet. His name was, yes, how many? It must have been 50 people said the same thing. Michael Jordan. Now, you can dispute whether or not he's the greatest of all time, but back then, at least by the time Larry Bird and Magic Johnson had gotten off the pages, Michael Jordan was the greatest, no doubt about it. On one particular occasion, you know, every team has role players. And um, the Chicago Bulls in that era had one role player. His name was Stacy. Stacy was a role player for Michael Jordan. Stacy King loved being on the Chicago Bulls. But he wasn't really that great. Graduate of Oklahoma State University, big guy, 6'11 in the middle, made his contribution, which was about five or six points a game on average. Played with multiple teams before his career was over. And on one particular night, he was on the floor when Michael Jordan scored his all-time highest ga single game record, and it was 69 points. Michael Jordan himself scored 69 points. If you're watching the NCAA tournament, you know there's plenty of times where the team doesn't score 69 points. He scored 69 points. And uh, a sports interviewer that can really be annoying, you know, like my daughter is sometimes, interviewing people, it, it catches, catches Stacy King <laughs> right after the game and walks up to him and says, uh, Stacy, tell us what this was like. I mean, to be a part of this moment and tell us, you know, this is great. And he goes, yeah. He said, I'm going to remember it as the night where me and Michael Jordan combined for 70 points. <laughs> he shot one free throw and made it. <laughs> now, now that's understanding partnership, isn't it? That's being a part of a friendship that's deep. And you're saying, man, I just am delighted to be with this guy. And it reorients my whole world. Jesus says, you're my friends. I'm going to transform the universe. And you're my friends. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And because I am, so will you. You're my friends. I'm going to live forever because I'm God. I always have lived forever. And because you're my friends, you're going to live forever. Come on, guys. <laughs> I've chosen you for joy. I've chosen you for love. I've chosen you for friendship. And you know what else I've chosen you for? I've chosen you to be my witnesses. Guys, 
you have seen me for three years. You can't keep a cork in your mouth about this. You got to share it. So share it, my friends, he says. Be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Tell everybody all about me. That's your vocation. Joy, love, friendship, and witness. Now, my friends, here's your reality. When you do what I've called you to do, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be beat up. He could have said, 11 out of 12 of you are going to die a martyr's death. There's your reality. So, in the face of that reality, I want you to hang on to your chosenness. I want you to hang on to your joy. I want you to remember that you're my friends. I want you to witness in my name. And in the midst of getting beat up, I want you to love. You know, love's got risk, right? A lot of risk. You can love somebody and they could not love you back. You could love somebody and they could take it the wrong way. <laughs> you could love somebody and the whole thing could go another direction. Love has risk. I, I read about a guy this week who um, was madly in love with this girl and she wasn't in love with him. They broke up and he decided that he was going to win her back. So he decided he would write her letters all the time. Started writing her a letter every week, a love letter. Then he moved it up to every day. And then it was four, it was all over. He was writing multiple letters every single day delivered to her house. And she finally fell in love and got married to the postman. <laughs> Ain't that great? <laughs> True story. <laughs> the love letters weren't for him. You got that, right? They were from somebody else, and his love letters created love for the postman. <laughs> Love's risky. Doesn't always go the way we want it to. Sometimes it backfires. But better to love and to have lost than not to have ever loved at all. I think one of the most profound quotes about um, the riskiness of love You'll not be surprised, I think so. Come from C.S. Lewis. Listen uh, to his words. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the coffin or the casket of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbroken, unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven 
where you can be perfectly safe from all the danger of love is hell. My, that's a reminder. It's risky, it hurts, it's your calling, it's life eternal. So what's your reality, disciples? You're going to be persecuted. And in the face of it, exercise love. Persecution, he says, is absolutely inevitable. Aren't you always surprised by those people who are amazed by persecution? Jesus probably would have thought that. If you follow me, you're going to be persecuted because people persecuted me. Why do you expect anything different? Don't complain. Don't whine. Don't act like it's unusual. Just accept it. It's your reality. To love me and to follow me means you will be persecuted. It's going to happen. There's a difference between accepting that reality and creating that reality, right? Jesus didn't say manufacture persecution. He didn't say be so stupid and arrogant and obnoxious that people persecute you. That's your fault. I'm not talking about that. We do that sometimes, right? Let's own it. We just live stupidly. And then we blame persecution on the person because we're a Christian, and it's not always true. But it is inevitable that if you follow Christ, you're going to be persecuted because there's this light and darkness thing that will never go away until all things are made new. And if you're on the side of light, you will be hated by those who are on the side of darkness, says Jesus. So expect it. Understanding your reality means understanding and owning persecution. Okay, how about if I ended right there? You wouldn't like that, would you? I won't, because it's a bad place to end. Why? Because there's a huge however that hangs over this entire conversation. Remember, you will be persecuted however also remember this. In the midst of persecution, there is real joy that is deeper and more meaningful than any superficial happiness you could create for yourself in this passing world. In the midst of persecution, I can give you that kind of deep joy. And the way you get that kind of deep joy is by investing in me and my way and my thoughts and living in me, life in the vine. That's how you experience the unspeakable joy in the midst of pain and heartache and persecution because this world's going to bring it. But I tell you, you can experience joy. Don't forget that. You're not going to experience joy if you're focused on you. You're not going to experience joy if you believe that your reality is defined by time and space. You're not going to experience joy if you think all there is is what you see, but you'll experience joy, my friend. Unspeakable joy if you invest in my purposes and live in me. 
That's the huge however. There's a second huge however. Yes, you'll experience persecution, however. The love that I commanded you to have will actually come from me. How about that? What I told you must be yours. What I told you you have to walk in, I'm going to give it to you. You don't have that kind of love. You can't produce that kind of joy. You are absolutely impotent. You can't do that. But I am going to place my love in you. I'm going to place myself in you. And that's why in the midst of persecution, you can experience joy and you can experience love because I'm going to be in it with you. There's a third huge however. You're going to be persecuted however. The relationship you have with me will not change. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be with you all the time in every circumstance. You can call on me as if I'm standing right next to you as a dear friend. And you can pray for faith and you can pray for patience and you can confess that you have neither and I will give it to you because we're like that. I'm never leaving. There's a fourth huge, however. Yes, you're going to face persecution. However, the assignment I give you comes with incredible power. Absolutely incredible power. And again, it's because of me. You feel like you don't have the words when I call you to witness? You don't. You feel like you don't have the patience? You don't. You feel like you don't have the love? You don't. You feel like you don't have the power to communicate this incredible truth? You don't. So I'm going to give it to you. And here's how I'm going to give it to you. I am going to pour into you like a giant pitcher the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to make the Spirit overflow in your life. And you will have power that's from above. And that power will allow you to live life in the fullest. Oh, you know, that's what he called the counselor. And he talks about him a little bit more in chapter 17. And then eventually he opens the bottle after he's gone to the Father and the Spirit falls. Not just on the prophets, not just on the saints not just on the preachers, but on everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. I'm going to pour out power on you. And then, my friends, because of me, you're called and you can love your enemies, love your friends, love me, and do the impossible because I'll be in you and I'm a God of the impossible. Follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that uh, your instructions to the disciples and vicariously to us are not some kind of Pollyanna religion, not some sort of just think positive idea. They're realistic. They call us to hard things. 
They give us challenges that are way over our heads. And then you infuse us with the ability to do what we think we could not do. And you give us the joy that absolutely defies logic. And you give us the love that is absolutely impossible. And then in the midst of the persecution, a transformation takes place in our life. Instead of whining and complaining because of you and our mission that we have in you, we, like the disciples, on occasion, say thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving me the privilege of suffering in your name. Lord, there's all kinds of miracles you did, but the biggest one is what you did and what you're doing in our hearts by faith. May we believe your words. May they be deep within us. May we be transformed. May we experience the impossible because you're a God of the impossible and we love you. Amen.